Hi folks, this is Dr. Christine. Welcome to your quality of life, healthy alternatives. Today, I'm extremely happy to be with uh, Dr. Gleb Tripolski. Do I pronounce it right, Gleb? Yes, you did. Thank you. He's known as a disaster avoidance expert, but not as you think, maybe a natural disaster, but he's on a mission to protect leaders from dangerous judgment errors known as cognitive biases. And he developed the most effective decision-making strategies. He has over two decades of consulting, coaching, and training experience as CEO of a disaster avoidance expert and over 15 years of experience in academia as a cognitive neuroscientist and behavioral economist. And you even went to medical school, I saw. (laughs) I did. You wrote extensively and your newest book is Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decision and Avoid Business Disasters. Now, I had the fortune to read at least part of it, and it is an amazing book. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your story. How did you get where you are today? Well, my journey actually begins in my childhood. You know, I was, and with my parents, making some pretty bad decisions. So, for example, up? I you grew up in... Yes, I grew up in the Republic of Moldova, a small ah. country in Eastern Europe, just east of Romania and southwest of Ukraine, for those who want to place it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, my, so I grew up there. My parents immigrated to the United States with me naturally when I was 10 in 1991, so I was born in 91. Now, with my parents, what, but that wasn't kind of part of my journey to, into decision-making. What was happening with my parents was that inside the family, when I was a kid, I saw them making bad decisions with each other. So, for example, my mom liked to buy nice clothing, so she'd go out, she'd buy a $100 sweater. And my dad was kind of a cheapskate, so he'd come home, he'd yell at her, no sweater should be worth over $20. And then they'd go at it. She'd bring up, you know, oh, you always leave the toilet seat up, and he'd bring up something else about her, and they'd go into a fight. And that was, as a kid, painful for me to see. It was hurtful for me to see my parents fighting like that. But what was even more painful, or just as painful, was that they kept making these same fights all the time, <laughs> making these same decisions. It's kind of a, when you've heard the colloquial definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. Well, they just kept doing the same things, and it was just hurting their relationship and it wasn't changing their behavior. My mom kept buying clothing, my dad kept yelling at her. So I tried to understand why was this happening? Why were they making these harmful decisions for themselves in their relationship? And nobody sat me down, unfortunately, explained to me, you know, here's how you make good decisions and here's how you make bad ones. I went to elementary school that wasn't taught to me, middle school, high school, college, business school. That's not a material that's taught to you. So I decided to study this myself. How do you make good decisions? Especially because I was growing up. So I mentioned I was born in 81. I came of age around the dot-com boom. When I was 18 in 1999, when tech companies like Webvan, Pets.com, Boo.com, they were booming. Just a couple of years later, they were all went bust in the dot-com bust. And the same people who were praised as brilliant decision makers in the Wall Street Journal and in The Guardian were now criticized as, you know, they went from heroes to villains, but nothing changed about the quality of their decisions. Clearly, if their decisions have clearly the Wall Street Journal, nor the Wall Street Journal, nor these titans of industry know how to make a good decision. 
they got lucky or they got unlucky. <laughs> so that's not about good decision making. That's kind of about luck and being in the right place at the right time. So I decided to study this topic. How do you make good decisions? What do you do about that? And that's how I became, as I started studying it, people started asking me about it. And that's how I became a coach, consultant, speaker, trainer. And I had to go into academia to study this topic because there's actually very little quality literature out there in the popular literature on how to make good decisions. You know, you see things like go with your gut, follow your intuitions, trust your heart, you know, trust yourself. Yeah. That's terrible and horrible advice. <laughs> That's incredibly it's bad. interesting advice. because so many people still teach it. And I must say, Absol I was taught that and it, it, it failed, by the way. And uh, uh, in school, nobody taught me how to make decisions. My parents didn't teach me either because, hey, they didn't know. So that's a very valid and good thing to do. Exactly. Exactly. And so this was something that I realized. And like you said, it's still being, it's overwhelmingly being talked. My book is the first book that goes out there and explicitly says, never go with your gut you know, and why you should never go with your gut if you want to avoid business disasters and personal life disasters. It's and way too. what to do instead. I love exactly. from the book, the organization and the formatting is easy to read. It's steps by steps by steps. It's cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, and it talks about the problems and then the solutions. That's the critical uh -huh. thing, like you said. Yeah. 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 And, and tell me a little bit more, a little bit what, what you did then i know you went to medical school how did that happen <laughs> well my parents always wanted me to go into medical school they were passionate about it and that was something that that they were really trying to get me to do mm -hmm. now i when i went to college i was always passionate about history so my phd degree so that i got a degree is in the history of behavioral science which allowed me as the history of behavioral science allowed me to join cognitive neuroscience behavioral economics and other related fields to study decision making in historical and contemporary settings that's something i was always passionate about but my parents like i said wanted me to go to medical school and i had a lot of friends who wanted me to go to medical school they were encouraging me so when i went to college i pursued a double major of medical of biology and history and I kept doing that and you know it's very hard to get into medical school here in the US I imagine elsewhere as well it's really difficult but what happened was that it was I was in the final stages of getting into medical school and I got the good great grades I got you know great exam scores I was pretty set on getting there but there was a question on an entrance exam asking you know why do you want to go into medical school just to write that that's a standard question you know but it really made and that was my last year of college and it really made me reflect on why do i actually want to go into medical school and the question made me realize i was falling into a decision trap where there is a cognitive bias called conform conformity to authority it's called the authority bias so where you conform to the authority whether your parents whether your peers and so on I realized I was falling into that trap I was just doing what other people wanted me to do as opposed to what really would satisfy my own needs and desires and drivers so I kind of looked internally and saw that it was going to be a bad life for me harmful life for me dangerous if I went into medical school I'll be making all sorts of problems for myself even though it was a lucrative career and even though i could have done it it just wouldn't be fulfilling and satisfying so i decided to change my course of action and despite my parents being very upset and angry with me i went into history and history of behavioral science 
So that, that was my journey and that was kind of one of the fundamental early stages of where I was really making fundamental life decisions based on the strategies of how do you inform, make, make good decisions as opposed to the gut, re, gut reaction ones. So that, that's really amazing because you did make good decisions after all. And how do you make good decisions? Tell us a little bit about it. Oh gosh, so I use the techniques that are in the book. So this is a natural uh, step into Read book. Read the book, there's no questions, but just sure. summarize no, yes, it a little yes, bit. Yes, yes, I'll, 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 I'll summarize it. I'm just letting folks know that, you know, there's no difference between what I do in my private life and what I write about. So when I look at my decision-making, the first thing I look at is what are my specific dangerous judgment errors, cognitive biases. And that's my area of expertise, cognitive biases. These are the dangerous judgment errors we make because of how our brain is wired. So what I had to learn for myself in order to make good decisions is where I am most vulnerable. One of the biggest ones, probably the biggest one for me is called the optimism bias. So the optimism bias, people like that tend to be way too optimistic about the world. They see the world as a friendly place, as full of opportunities and full of hope. They really see the glass as half full, not half empty. <laughs> and uh, they, I wake up in the morning and I have 20 ideas and I feel they're all brilliant. So that's kind of the optimism bias experience. That's what it feels like. And that means I make a lot of mistakes because I miss a lot of risks, a lot of threats, I'm risk blind. So that's a big problem for me. And that's one of the biggest things I have to compensate for. I have to be aware of that myself. I have to learn about these dangerous judgment errors. You know, when I, in graduate school, learned about the optimism bias, I realized that, hey, here are all the mistakes I've been making all my life. And this is one, this is probably the biggest factor of all of these wow. mistakes where I am too optimistic and too risk blind. So that's, I have to compensate for that. And there are a number of steps that I take to compensate for it. First of all, I learn how, uh, how optimistic I tend to be. You know, if I exaggerate, let's say if I'm trying to persuade a client to do something. So I'm a trainer, consultant, coach, right? So if that's part of what I do, I try to encourage my clients to do things that sure. seem the best I do for the them. the same thing, exactly. brain health. Exactly. <laughs> it's related. It's really related of because course. you need a well-functioning brain from the physical, social, spiritual, and biological, from all the mm -hmm. aspects, to be able to make good decisions. That's right. Wow. Yes, you definitely do. Cool. You need to have good routine. But yes, so it often feels to me that I'm much more capable of convincing a client to do what they, what the client should do based yeah. on the client's goals and me you know, seeing them from the outside than the client is actually willing to do. So I had to learn that, that about myself and I had to learn that, you know, first of all, in, I'm not going to be nearly as successful as I hope I will be and I can't take the kind of approach that works on me and fits my intuition which is what is intuitive for me, the kind of that's yeah. the optimistic approach, the way I would explain to myself, but that's not what works for other people. <laughs> so I can't be nearly as optimistic about the approach I take as well. So I have to really think through all the risks, all the problems, all the threats, what might happen, how might my client react and how, so I need to kind of go from that perspective, from their perspective, think about risks, threats, and so on. So that's kind of a part of what I do to compensate for it. Another thing I do when I make decisions for myself, not when I'm trying to persuade a client, is just internally tamp down my enthusiasm and say, you know, whatever I'm enthusiastic about is much less likely to happen than I feel it is. So that I make a more 
effective prediction and probability of the future. So that's kind of another, that's called probabilistic thinking. I talk about that in the book. So the first technique is called external perspective, taking an external perspective. That's one of the 12, 10 techniques in the book that I talk about that address these dangerous judgment errors. Another one is probabilistic thinking, thinking in probabilities as opposed to hopes, wishes, and desires. And another one is getting a, a trusted and objective advisor, getting an outside view. So external perspective means looking at the situation from the outside and getting an outside view means getting someone who you trust to give you feedback on it. So I make sure to run my 20 brilliant ideas by someone who has a pessimism bias. And pessimism bias, that's the opposite cognitive bias. People who are very risk averse, who see the world as mostly a hostile place, full of threats, not opportunities. Now, when I give them my 20 brilliant ideas, you know, they may take a look at them and say, well, these are all half-baked potatoes, but they, maybe these three are worth finishing baking. And mm -hmm. you know, pessimists are terrible at generating ideas because they see the exaggerated problems and flaws of each idea. But what they're great at is figuring out the flaws, fixing the flaws and implementing the solutions. So that's, another, that's something that I make sure to do when I have an important decision. That, that is really amazing. And I can see that even in, in my relationship, my husband has a pessimism bias, I have an optimism bias, mm. so we are perfect fit. <laughs> yes, yes, that's, that's great, that works well. It works well when you know about these dynamics. Now, what yeah. tends to happen when I do consulting and coaching with teams and with couples with, is that people tend to fight a lot, who have the optimism bias and the pessimism bias. The optimism, people who are optimistic, and of course you figured this out, but most people who are optimistic, what they tend to do is they tend to generate ideas, you know, shoot off, you know, have formed thoughts, have baked potatoes and so on, and give up. they're very enthusiastic. And, and pessimists convinced they are right. Exactly. Yes, 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 yes. And mm. pessimists are, by contrast, always shooting down these ideas. They, they feel that these are bad ideas, that they feel inherent flaws of each ideas and exaggerated flaws of each idea. So that's kind of the dynamic that goes on with mostly, with, whether in teams and organizations, whether in relationships, that is the dynamic I've seen most often. That's how it fails, the optimism bias and the pessimism mm -hmm. bias. And what people need to do in that case, if that's something that they're either within their organization or within their relationships, what they need to do is separate the task of generating ideas and evaluating them. So mm -hmm. the optimist generates ideas, but then they give them over to the pessimists to evaluate and say, okay, you know, here, here are five ideas that, you know, I, you should evaluate and see. And then the pessimists can really take a look at these ideas and say, you know, maybe these one or two are worth pursuing. So that's kind of how the dynamic should work. And that's the most effective way for them to go forward to not take ownership of an idea and not feel personally criticized when the pessimist criticizes your idea. But it's very hard if you don't separate yourself. So that's a very important mental step. And as you said, it also applies to your personal life. And yep. as, a, as, a, as a retired physician and now brain health and mental health coach, it's exactly the same. They need to make better decisions by doing it, putting it in little steps and going separating, as you say, the feeling, oh, I don't feel like working today <laughs> <laughs> from a realistic approach. And that can be hard. Exactly. Exactly. Now, what do you tell your executives when they say, oh, but I know. <laughs> I feel I mean, it in my gut. <laughs> I asked them to recall times in the past when their 
decision-making based on gut reactions has not gone well. And there's plenty of times, you know, they can, there's plenty of times when people have, have made gut decisions that did not go well, and I try to get them to recollect that. And I try to get them to look at the situation, you know, the relationships, their conflicts with others in the team, their dynamics, when they make a prediction about a strategic plan that works out poorly. There are so many ways that companies fail, that executives fail, that, were that they realize eventually that they failed, but they don't realize that why they failed is because of their decision-making process. Right. They just think of, oh, okay, you know, that's the external circumstances. And then they point out that, you know, the external circumstances could have been addressed. I mean, let's say with the COVID-19, right, the pandemic, bad situation, terrible, horrible situation. But there are a number of people who bought pandemic insurance for their companies. You know, there's a th same thing like that. Pandemic insurance, you know, companies can have that. You know, it's harder for people to buy that, but, you know, but it's not about people, it's about companies. And companies who had that, you know, they were fine because they had their insurance. So the insurance yeah. paid, paid it off, right? I, so you, I, I, they foresaw yeah. this possibility. And of course, it's not expensive to buy pandemic insurance, yeah. just as it's not expensive to buy fire insurance and so on. But, you know, combined, of course, it's a cost. However, you know, we, that, that's the thing. When does it pay off? And here, for those companies, it really paid off. Interesting. And and thinking of COVID-19, it's a classic example also of the conformity bias. Mm -hmm. Because I see people that wear masks outside when they're alone in their house, in their car, and that doesn't make any rational sense. That's just an example. And, and, and yes, if they would put that in case, read your book and put those steps in place, they might realize that it doesn't help them to wear the mask when they're all alone. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't help. It's just uh, draining their energy and willpower. Exactly. So and they should they should oxygen. save that. Yes, they should they should save that energy and willpower for using the mask when they're in a company. That's absolutely right. Agree. That's absolutely right. Absolutely agree. Yep. Yeah, and, and yeah. that that's that's good examples. And uh, what else do you make the uh, CEOs do so they mm. actually are successful? So what I make sure to, that they do is. Every on daily decisions, I make sure that they follow a five-step approach. And these are decisions that you make. They make, and you probably make two to five, or maybe even ten times a day that you don't want to screw up. You're writing an important email. You're going to an important meeting. You're having an important interview. Something like that that you don't want to screw up. That you want to get right. Maybe you're thinking about how to broach a troublesome issue with your romantic partner or kids or something like that. How, you don't want to screw that up. You want to make sure that this situation goes right or an important purchase, you know, that's worth a thousand or more dollars. There's a five-step process that incorporates a lot of the techniques that are in the book that takes only a couple of minutes to go through. So it's very much worth the trouble because they'll save you thousands of hours and many thousands of dollars for addressing the problems that result from bad decisions. So first step. What important information haven't I fully considered? Five questions. This is the first one. What evidence haven't you taken into account? There's a cognitive bias called the confirmation bias, where we tend to look for information that confirms our beliefs and ignore information that doesn't, and many other information-related biases like this. So you want to look especially for information that doesn't confirm your beliefs, that goes against your intuitions, and try to disprove your initial assumptions. Try to prove that you're wrong. Because, you know, if you, if you can prove that you're wrong, you'll make a much better decision. And if you can't, you're more likely to be correct. Love that. So, 
Yep, that's the first step. Second, what dangerous judgment errors haven't I fully considered? So you gotta know about the problems before you really go into good, good decision making. My book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, talks about the 30 most dangerous judgment errors in professional and workplace settings and how you can address them. And of course, they all apply in the home settings as well. So there are over 100 cognitive biases altogether. So just FYI, so you're not getting all of them. You can check out the list on Wikipedia, but my book talks about how to fix each one that is available and is really relevant. So that you want to learn about these cognitive biases and how to address them. Third, what would a trusted objective advisor suggest I do? So think about that little angel on your shoulder. What would that person suggest you do? Try to step outside of yourself and ask yourself, what would you tell a trusted friend, someone you care about to do in this situation? You get about 50% of the benefit just by asking the question, stepping outside of yourself. You get that outside perspective, like I asked about you know, the client who I'm trying to get to do something. So that's an example. And of course, you get the other 50% of the benefit by calling this person, or if you're a millennial, texting this person. <laughs> Fourth one. How have I addressed all the ways this can fail? So think about all the problems, all the issues that can go wrong. How have you addressed all the issues that can occur, go wrong with this decision? Let's say you're thinking about an important conversation with your boss where you want to ask for a raise. What might be happening in the company that might impede this conversation? Or maybe your boss is in a bad mood. You know, you want to, so that's certainly very important to evaluate. You don't want to ask your boss for a raise when she's in a bad mood. So you got to go and think about, well, what's the situation like? And so all of these sorts of considerations, plan it out, think about it in advance. Finally, what would you, how would you revise this decision when further evidence comes along? So what new information would cause you to reevaluate your decision? That's the fifth question. And this is a really important question because if you don't have this question, then you're not going to be certain, you're not going to be committed to your decision and you're not going to be clear, it's not going to be clear to you when you should change your mind. Because a really important component of any good decision is being able to change your mind because you know we're not perfect. This process can only optimize your likelihood of making a good decision. It can bring it to the maximum potential, but it can't guarantee anything. You know, anyone who says they can guarantee anything, you know, good decisions, you gotta run away from that person. They're, yeah. they're lying. <laughs> so this yeah. only maximizes your chance of making a good decision. You gotta be ready to change your mind and have that humility. And it's really good to have in mind the kind of information that you would need to decide that, hey, I want to revisit this decision. So it took me two minutes to talk through, and like I said, it can save you many, many hours and many thousands of dollars or euros if you use this approach. So this is a good way actually to prioritize your goals. Mm -hmm. When you in the morning sit down, what do I want to achieve today? And then you can say, well, is it a good decision or a bad decision, like you said? Yep, absolutely. So this is definitely a good way to prioritize, to structure your day. I have my clients use it as part of a team meeting, so where the whole team they just structure the agenda around the decision that they want to make through these five questions. And then they talk through each of these five questions in turn about the decision. And that really saves them a lot of time rather than a typical decision-making meeting where just people spout off about, you know, whatever. But here, everyone comes to the meeting having already thought about their answer to this question. And then they bring that information to the room. And then everyone talks through about their answer and then they get to a consensus answer and that way they can maximize the likelihood of a company organization team making the best decision 
And that is really fascinating. I can see that really evoking. And I can also see that helpful for people that have trouble making good decisions to use in their life because their brain may be damaged from a traumatic brain injury, being mm -hmm. a brain health coach. I'm always thinking about brain uh, function. And yeah. yes, many people have trouble with their frontal lobes where the good decisions are made and a procedure like you recommend might guide them to a better decision and actually over time improve the function of the front lobes. So that's amazing yep. to me. You're, you're absolutely right. And there's extensive research, as I'm, I'm sure you know, on the fact that the more we use certain parts of our brain, we, we develop mental habits. So it's, you know, we, you're, you're, everyone's well aware of physical habits, you know, brushing your teeth, washing your hands, all that. But what they might not be aware of is mental habits. The way that you think reinforces this, the patterns that you think. So that if you think a certain way, that pattern will be reinforced. If you think a different way, that other pattern will be reinforced. Right. So you want to train yourself to reinforce the pattern that gets you into the best decision making. And that's why this, these sorts of questions, the more you use them, the easier it becomes. And the more you, they become intuitive to you, you, be, you internalize them and you use them habitually as a mental habit. So that's very good. And that certainly improves your mental functioning. Absolutely. And, and I love that you actually can incorporate. It's like training your willpower. Mm -hmm. You go by the cookie jar and you don't take a cookie. And the next time it gets easier. Yeah. Yep, and, exactly. And you, you don't fall in the trap, oh, I'm watching TV, I want to munch. But you do something else. Mm -hmm. yep. I do Sudoku that keeps my hands busy and then I don't want to eat. Nice, nice. Sa same idea, but uh, yeah. I, I love how you conceptualize the whole thing and put it in a very nice book. It's well written, it's fun to read. Never go with your gut. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's my pleasure and certainly I, I'm all about gut health, so never go with your gut, <laughs> <laughs> except for good nutrition. If you really want yes. to have it, have it. But it's a good decision made. So there we are again. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure to have you there. It's a very good thing. And I recommend to everybody, get his book. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that, Christine. Okay, thanks, Gleb. <laughs>